This is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is Crime and Punishment with Attorney John Pucci. Welcome to the show, everyone. We really appreciate your being with us this morning, and we really appreciate John Pucci being back with us on the show. John is a partner partner at Buckley Richardson. He was a former longtime U.S. attorney and former head of the U.S. Attorney's Office in Springfield, Massachusetts. We want to talk more, I want to talk more with John today about the charges that can be brought against Donald Trump. But before we get to the specific charges, which we have touched on before, I want to talk about the topic that is really going around and people are talking about a lot, which is where's Merrick Garland? What's going on? Why haven't charges been brought? How come we don't hear anything? And I think that's a uh, legitimate question, and I'd like to know some answers. So, John Pucci, help us understand this process and tell us why we can expect or should expect to know more or whether we shouldn't and when we will get news. It's a big topic, but I'd really like to hear the big picture from you, please. Sure. So uh, by way of background, um, I was a federal prosecutor for 10 years in Philadelphia and then in Springfield. And in, in the years that I was in those places, we had sitting grand juries. In Philadelphia, there were, there were four or five grand juries sitting each day of the week, every day. So five in a, in a week. Some days there were two uh, grand juries sitting. And in every, every federal courthouse in America, there's a federal grand jury sitting uh, routinely in vetting and examining cases and voting whether to indict the defendants or not. So what I'm going to talk about is a very widespread, very daily process that goes on in every single federal courthouse in America in which grand juries sit and decide whether to indict an individual or not at the end of an investigation. John, could you stop there for a second and tell us how many jurors are on a grand jury and what it takes to get an indictment? and what the standard sure. of proof is, all of that? So grand jurors are chosen from the voter rolls in the judicial districts they sit in. So in Springfield, the grand jury is charged is drawn from the voter polls of the four western counties of Massachusetts. In Worcester, it's Worcester County, and in Boston, it's the surrounding counties in Boston. So from the voter polls in the local district, federal district, there are 17 to 23 people chosen, and they're vetted by the sitting federal judge. It's all done secretly. It's all done behind closed doors, subject to confidentiality. And they're vetted as a small jury, a petite jury is vetted, except for one important thing. There's no defense attorneys in the room. There's nobody in the room from the uh, defense side of the bar or representing a defendant who are asking the grand jurors who are sitting questions that might elicit bias or prejudice. So it is a one-sided process in which the federal prosecutors sit in a room and uh, they need a majority, they need a majority of a, of a quorum to indict a case. If a quorum is uh, 17, they need 12 people to vote to indict a charge that is proposed by the federal grand uh, by the federal prosecutors. Now, the federal prosecutors present evidence on a staggered basis, depending on what case, uh, what cases they have under investigation. So, on any given day, let's say in Springfield, where I ran the grand jury, on any given day, the jury might come in, grand jury would come in, and they would hear evidence in 
three or four or five different cases and they might they sit for 18 months believe it or not one day a week typically or one day every two weeks for 18 months they take evidence in multiple cases and at some point in the process the government decides the prosecution decides do we want to seek an indictment or not there are cases that they never seek an indictment in that just die on the vine out of the public view in the grand jury when the government decides the prosecutor charge. If they decide to bring it, a charge, they draw up a piece of paper with the proposed charges on it, they give it to the grand jury, they leave the room, and there's a grand jury foreman who takes a vote. And if a majority of the sitting uh, uh, grand jurors, that 17 to 23 people vote to indict, then they issue an indictment that goes to a judge. Now, it's really important to understand that the grand jury has very different evidentiary rules. For instance, hearsay is admissible. A police officer can go testify in the grand jury and read from a police report about what other people say who aren't going to testify. So hearsay is admissible. It's not cross-examined. There's no defense attorney in the room. So if a target of investigation, let's say a murder case, is about to be indicted or considered for uh, indictment, uh, there are no defense attorneys in the room. The defendant or the target is given the option to testify or not. They almost never do. If they do testify, they can't have a lawyer in the room with them on the federal side, on the federal side, so that if you represent as a lawyer myself a target and the target goes into the grand jury and the and the door shuts you sit outside nervous chewing your nails and wondering what the heck is going on behind that door you don't know if it's good or bad but you have no ability to cross-examine to do any direct examination to raise other questions with the with the jury grand jury it is a process uh, that is very one-sided but it's meant to vet cases. It's a forum to, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, a process that allows the government to issue subpoenas and take witnesses in and force them to testify if need be, gather lots of different records. But at the end of the day, it's a one-sided process. And the standard is whether there's probable cause, which is a low standard, whether it's likely the defendant committed the crimes the prosecution proposes to charge him for, rather than a trial where it has to be a unanimous verdict beyond a reasonable doubt. And those are profound differences between a grand jury and a petite jury. Now, there's one other part of this I want to mention, which is a petite jury, jury being up, being what we think of as a trial jury. Right. A, a trial jury of 12 people who sit in an open courtroom. The process in the grand jury, and this is this is goes to the issue of Mer what Merrick Garland's doing. People want to know what he's doing. What is he up to? Who is he hearing from? There's a rule, Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 6, which makes it completely secret, top secret, and the prosecution cannot disclose to the public what witnesses they're calling, what documents they're put in play, what charges they're considering, until, if, until and if, uh, they on, only if they issue an indictment in the case, only then do you find out what happened in the grand jury because it's disclosed to the public by way of indictment and what are called discovery materials. So if Garland decides, I'm not going to seek an indictment, I'm not going to put that piece of paper in front of the grand jury to indict Trump, 
um, we will never know what happened in the grand jury other than the fact he never got indicted. If he's indicted, there'll be a, a paper document. It'll be a, no doubt a speaking uh, indictment, which will tell a story and tell why he's charged and what he's charged with, but only, only if he's indicted, only at that point does the, the, the federal grand jury proceedings become public. Okay, so to review, a grand jury uh, is listening to evidence presented only by one side, and there's no cross-examination. The standard of proof is not beyond a reasonable doubt, but it's only what's called probable cause, which is barely probable. It's is there evidence of a crime, that a crime was committed? There need not be a unanimous uh, verdict. You only need to have a majority of the 17 to 23 uh, grand jurors who are sitting. The grand jurors sit for up to 18 months under the federal system. It's not an open process. In fact, it's a completely secret process under Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 6. So I got that. I'm pretty sure I got that right. Here's what I want to know, John. There's this old adage that a grand jury could indict a ham sandwich uh, because the process is so skewed towards the prosecution, which means it's easy to get an indictment. So why doesn't Garland do it? Well, it's easier. I wouldn't say it's easy because if if you in the federal system, the conviction rate is ninety five percent. Ninety five percent of people who get indicted are convicted, and the reason for that, it's much higher than the state system, is that the federal grand jury system allows prosecutors to simply decline to bring a case forward. They can simply say, we're not going to proceed. We don't think we can win a trial. We don't indict a case and go through the labor and, and, and risk of reputational risk and the torture of defendants, frankly, of individuals by charging with them with crimes we cannot prove beyond a reasonable doubt. So that's the question that Garland has to face. That's the f primary question, there are other questions, but he has to look at the evidence. Do I have evidence of the charges that I'm considering? Is it proof beyond a reasonable doubt? And only at that point do they actually seek an indictment. There's many cases in which over my career that were in a pre-indictment phase in which the government chose not to indict the case and it went to sleep and no one ever heard anything about it. Now, grand jurors themselves are sworn to secrecy. Is that right? Yes. And the prosecutors? Yes, the grand jurors, the prosecutors, the agents that testify, the translators, if any, are in there, the people that transcribe the proceedings. The only person who can talk about what happened in the grand jury is an actual grand jury witness. That person can walk out of the room and hold a press conference if, if they want it's not wise, probably, if they want, about what happened in the room, because their vantage point will be limited to what they had to testify to. They will have no knowledge about the breadth of the other witness's testimony. But otherwise, other than the witness, nobody has the right, and it's a, it can be held a, uh, to be a, a criminal offense in contempt of court, and you can go to jail if any of those people who are not permitted to expose the information pre-indictment do it. So until or unless there's an indictment, is the public, are we going to remain ignorant of all the proceedings, whatever they are? And actually, I guess we don't even know if there is a grand jury, although it's pretty widely uh, expected and anticipated and reported that there is. But until this process is over, 
we're never going to know anything? Well, there's, a, there's already the Washington Post has listed a couple witnesses who have publicly said they testified. So those witnesses presumably aren't making that up. They're credible witnesses. I think they were aides to Mike Pence. And they testified in the grand jury. They said they did. And they were seen going in and out of the courthouse. So we know there's a grand jury uh, process in place. I think that's credible evidence. But beyond that, we also know that there were search warrants executed on several very important players on the Trump side of this um, equation. John Eastman uh, and a guy named Jeffrey Clark, who were lawyers inside and outside of the Department of Justice who were on the Trump team trying to fix the election. And they had their their search, they had their electronic data uh, uh, units seized, their iPhones and their computers seized. Clark's house was searched. And that process the grant is not a grand jury process, but it's a joint, it's joined to it in which the same prosecutors accumulate evidence, go to an independent judge, get authority to execute the search warrants. It's a very, very significant step. It means that the U.S. attorneys who are in charge of the investigation are not only putting people in the grand jury, they're aggressively seeking through search warrants to get evidence that will then get put in the grand jury. So for sure, for sure, there is a grand jury in play, underway, to look at the, the, the whole Trump uh, election uh, scenarios. We are speaking with Attorney John Pucci. We're going to take a quick break and we come back and we're going to ask the question, well, how long does this go on for? Will we just sit and wait for kind of ever or until Trump runs for re-election, maybe gets re-elected? Never mind. We won't go there. Or maybe we will. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. A lot of mattress stores, all they talk about is price. Sale, 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 save, 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 blah, blah, blah. I get it. No one wants to pay a dollar more than you have to. But what do you really know about mattresses? Are you an expert? I'm not. And I have a furniture store. So I at least know a little. Hi, it's Robin from Talon Furniture. We mostly sell therapeutic mattresses at Talon Furniture. Not Tempur-Pedic, not trying to mislead you. Therapeutic. The best mattress value I've ever found. And believe me, I've looked around. Therapeutic mattresses are made in Brockton. I've walked the floor and it was reassuring because there's no toxicity, no off-gassing. Therapeutic mattresses are clean and made by fellow Red Sox fans. Play the sale, sale, sale game if you want. That's not for me. A therapeutic mattress from Talon Furniture is your best bet and best deal. Today, tomorrow, or whenever you decide to buy a new mattress. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you. Until now. 
Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Arbella Insurance. Hi, this is Allison Ebner, Director of Membership for the Employers Association of the Northeast. EANE supports over 1,000 business members across the region with improving their people process. Now more than ever, business leaders and HR professionals need a resource they can count on to provide compliance, employee relations, and training opportunities that drive engagement and create better business models. Put the EANE team to work for you. Learn more at EANE.org or reach out to me directly at 789 this is Bill Newman, WHMP. And this is our regular monthly segment with Attorney John Pucci, Crime and Punishment. We're talking about the indictment, potential indictment faced by former President Trump. So a couple more questions on the grand jury, John, if I might. First of all, why is it so secret? What's the point? The point of it is... Um, that in general, certainly not in regard to the Trump investigation, which is so widely reported on and known, it's known he's subject to, if not a target of a federal grand jury investigation, secrecy is important to protect the confidentiality and privacy of people who don't get charged, who maybe were targets or subjects of a grand jury investigation, maybe the grand jury didn't vote to indict when the government sought it, or maybe the government said, we're not going to indict because we don't have enough evidence to win a trial. So by keeping it confidential, you're protecting the reputation, interests, and the privacy of people who aren't charged with crimes. And that happens. Believe me, it happens a fair amount. There is this idea that the grand jury phrase often used can be a sword and a shield, uh, from my point of view, generally a sword from the prosecutor's point of view. But I suppose it also does shield people's reputation and the secret and the secrecy serves that purpose, which you've just explained, which I appreciate. Let me ask you this. Um, you told us the grand jury can go on for 18 months. Is that it or is it, can it be extended? And what's the norm? It can be extended for six months based on a government motion. Um, and um, I'm not sure what the norm is, what the numbers are. It's fairly routine to have them extended. If they have a big investigation in it, it might in the grand jury, it might be extended for six months. It's also possible that after 18 months or the extension of six more months, 24 months, that the grand jury investigation be transferred to a new grand jury. And that's a whole other ornate process in which all the transcripts of the prior testimony have to be presented and made available to the new grand jury. So technically, it can go on for as long as the statute of limitations is alive for the underlying offenses, which is which is could be five years. It can be 10 years. It can be 20 years for a RICO. But in this case, I mean, given the politics here, uh, you know, uh, the decision has to be made, I think, within this grand jury, and it has to be made fairly promptly to indict or not indict. 
and given the January 6th uh, committee hearings, it's not like there's a lot of secrets out there. I'm sure there are things that we don't know, testimony that was in the grand jury we don't know, but boy, there's a lot of information out there that 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 sheds a light on whether to proceed or not. So I think they're, they're going to have to pull a trigger on this for, for lots of good reasons, including the nation's need to know this calendar year. And is that, is that your guess? We'll know this year. They'll either be an indictment or there won't. Or soon thereafter. But, you know, I think if a year from I would be shocked if a year from now we're having this discussion about will they or won't they charge him. I think it'll come more quickly. But let me ask you this. The the Department of Justice has a policy about not bringing indictments if it's going to influence elections. Something along those lines. Um, Yes. So how does that play into this uh, process? Well, the policy is, as you've stated, that generally politically sensitive charges that would could be, be implicate somebody in a political campaign aren't brought within six months of the election. So that doesn't, you know, so with the election for if, if, if he if Trump declares is what is it 2024. So there's plenty of time uh, to but, do it. But not, but so, the, the, so the, these upcoming elections, the midterms, don't implicate that policy of six months, not indicting within no. six months, because it has to be uh, six, uh, the election in which the potential target is involved? Yes. Okay. That's helpful to know. One last question on this. Uh, does the grand jury, do the prosecutors in, in the grand jury have the authority to grant immunity to witnesses so that they can't take the Fifth Amendment? The person comes in and says, no, I refuse to testify on the basis that the uh, evidence I give may tend to incriminate me or I plead the Fifth Amendment. Or they s- simply send a letter saying, I'm going to take the Fifth Amendment so I don't need to come. Um, can prosecutors turn around and say, aha, actually you do. We're going to grant you immunity from all charges uh, for your testimony here, testimonial immunity, and now you have to come testify. Can they do that at the grand jury? And do you think they are doing that? They definitely can do it. Um, it's a standard tool utilized in the grand jury. It's a way to force reluctant witnesses, witnesses who refuse to, to voluntarily testify to get to the grand jury. What it means is they have to, the government, the prosecutors have to give up charging that individual with, a, with any crime that they're testifying about. So they can go in the grand jury and admit, and admit to murders and rapes and robberies, but if it's immunized testimony, it effectively closes the door in their prosecution for that. Because that... they have that authority and it's a unilateral authority and they can impose it on witnesses. And then there are two different kinds. We don't have to go into this today, but there are two different kinds of immunity. One is transactional immunity, immunity from any charges, and the other is testimonial immunity. They can't use the testimony that is uh, adduced at the grand jury itself. John, we just have a couple minutes left. I want to go back to something we talked about the last time you were on the show. What charges are most likely to be brought against Trump if charges are to be brought? Well, there's obstructing an official proceeding of Congress. That's that's what happened at the Capitol with the uh, insurrectionists, uh, given uh, in Trump's green lighting them, taking going to the Capitol and attempting to interfere with uh, Pence's certification of the Electoral College results. So obstructing an official proceeding of Congress, the counting of the electrical 
electric. <laughs> the electrical charge. The, yes. <laughs> the electrical charge is a positive charge. The electrical, elect, you know what I mean. We're going to go with electoral. Uh, it is a violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1512. That's a charge. Conspiracy defraud, to defraud the American people uh, of the results of their electoral votes. Uh, 18 U.S.C. 371 is a charge. And you can also, there's a sedition charge, which we can talk about a little bit. But you can also charge, it doesn't have to be um, a direct it doesn't have to be that Trump was the actor in these things. If he conspired to do it, that conspired to obstruct or conspired to defraud the American people of the Electoral College results, uh, he can be convicted of conspiracy, which is 18 U.S.C. 371, a different crime. He can also be convicted, and this is important, of aiding and abetting these crimes. So a conspiracy requires an agreement, and I'm not sure that there's going to be evidence, actually, of an agreement between Trump and the insurrectionists but aiding and abetting is a different is a different theory of prosecution in which somebody who isn't in agreement there's no evidence they sat down and made an agreement implied or explicit but who uh, participated and supported took an act to support the violation of law can be charged with aiding and abetting that violation and i think that that would be charged for sure uh, in any of these uh, particular substantive offenses, obstruction or conspiracy, uh, or even sedition, aiding and abetting those things is a federal crime and carries the same penalties for its violation. Even a non-law legal scholar like myself has heard many times throughout the course of their life that if you you know yell fire in a crowded theater or things like that, or inciting a riot would be a, you know a, above and beyond your First Amendment protections of freedom of speech. Is something as simple as inciting a riot a possible charge? I don't think it's a federal crime, Monty, but I will get out the books, and when I come on next time, I will have an answer for you. Excellent. Okay. Just for our listeners, when John says these numbers, 18 USC and a number after that, he's saying Title 18 of the United States Code, USC, and then the section of the code, which is that crime. John Pucci, this has been really interesting. I hope you'll come back. hope you come back before a month goes by, uh, and we have a lot more to talk about, because I'd really like to talk about this crime of sedition a and a seditious conspiracy, a conspiracy to overthrow the United States government by force or violence, or to interfere with the workings of the government by force or violence. So we have a lot more to talk about, and we will. John Pucci, always a pleasure to speak with you. really appreciate your insights. Thank you so very much. Okay, take care. We'll talk soon. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Sports betting is now legal in Massachusetts for all professional sporting events in and outside the state. But there are different rules for in-state college sports, as Senator Joe Comerford explains. Massachusetts schools are not part of the cohort of college sports able to be bet on. Here in Massachusetts, we can bet on other schools, but not our schools. The bill allows sports betting at the state's three casinos, including MGM Springfield, as well as up to seven online gaming operators, but it won't allow betting at bars and restaurants.
Another deadly crash, this time in Granby on Sunday night. Granby police said officers were called to the scene around 10.40 p.m. on Route 116 for a two-car accident. 28-year-old Ryan Kennedy of West Springfield was pronounced dead at Bay State Medical Center. Canine demonstrators, free ice cream, and climbing on fire trucks. It's all part of National Night Out. Police and fire departments across the region are resuming National Night Out events this week. Traditionally, National Night Out is held on the first Tuesday in August to give residents and police a chance to get to know each other, forge relationships, and prevent crime. Agawam, Ware, and Palmer are all holding events tonight with other communities holding events later in the month. Westfield will have their event this Saturday from noon to 9 p.m. For WHMP News, I'm Stefan Ward-Wheaton. The town of Orange is also participating in National Night Out tonight. The Orange Fire and Police Departments will be at Butterfield Park at 82 East River Street from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. Mixture of sun and clouds today. Watch out for scattered showers this afternoon. Might be a rumble of thunder in there. A high of 86 to 90. Mostly clear tonight. Overnight low of 60 to 66. Partly to mostly sunny tomorrow. 86 to 90. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis. 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Vega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La Corte Suprema certificó el lunes su fallo de un mes que permite a la administración Biden poner fin a una política fronteriza fundamental de la era Trump para hacer que los solicitantes de asilo esperen en México para audiencias en la Corte de Inmigración de Estados Unidos, un acto pro forma que ha llamado la atención en medio de casi silencio total de la Casa Blanca sobre cuándo, cómo e incluso si desmantelará la política. La entrada del expediente de dos palabras decía sentencia emitida para registrar que los jueces votaron 5 a 4 en un fallo emitido el 30 de junio de que la administración podría desechar la política permanecer en México anulando un tribunal inferior que obligó a restablecer la política en diciembre. En otras informaciones, los legisladores de Massachusetts aprobaron un proyecto de ley destinado a reformular las leyes de armas del Estado a raíz del fallo de la Corte Suprema del mes pasado que dificulta que los estados limiten el acceso a las armas de fuego. Los líderes demócratas que se comprometieron a redactar una legislación más estricta cuando regresen a la sesión formal el próximo año, dijeron que el proyecto de ley alinearía la ley estatal con el fallo del Tribunal Superior, que encontró que una ley de Nueva York que restringe las licencias de portación, similar a la ley de Massachusetts era inconstitucional. Según la ley de Nueva York, los residentes debían demostrar una causa adecuada o una necesidad real de portar un arma de fuego oculta en público para defensa propia. La ley de Massachusetts había dicho que aquellos que se consideran aptos podrían obtener una licencia de portación si muestran buenas razones para temer lesiones a ellos mismos o a su propiedad, o por cualquier otra razón, incluido para uso en deportes o prácticas de tiro únicamente. El proyecto de ley aprobado el lunes en la mañana eliminaría gran parte del lenguaje que el fallo judicial consideró inconstitucional. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. As most of our listeners know, veterans issues have been very prominent here in our area in the last few months. There has been wide range, there was wide ranging criticism of the plan to close the Veterans Administration Medical Center in Leeds, and Congressman Jim McGovern managed to put the kibosh on that 
fortunately. There has been a lot of discussion about the Holyoke Soldiers' Home and the one in the eastern part of the state as well. And, of course, there was legislation just passed by the uh, Massachusetts House and Senate in the last two days with regard to governance of the soldiers' home, something we talked about with Senator Joe Comerford yesterday. We are so pleased to have with us on our show this morning Steve Early. He is the co-author of a new book titled Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends, and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs. Steve Early is a freelance journalist and a labor organizer, a lawyer, and author of most recently, Refinery Town, Big Oil, Big Money, and the Remaking of an American City. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Nation, among other publications. And again, his new book, of which he is the co-author, Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends, and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs. Steve Early, thank you so much for being with us. What I would like to know from you is this is a really interesting, very comprehensive and insightful book. Uh, I think all authors of nonfiction have this idea that if this book hits big, it would really have this impact. It would really influence this policy. It would really change the world in this way. I I, want to give you this magic wand of what uh, nonfiction can do, what reporting can do, and ask you, what is your hope or you and your co-authors hope with regard to this book? What would you really like to accomplish in, when in writing this book, Our Veterans? Well, all three of us uh, who wrote Our Veterans have been involved in various ways as uh, advocacy journalists in supporting the community labor struggle against uh, privatization of veterans health care, which is a major threat to the nation's largest public healthcare system, which is operated by the Department of Veterans Affairs. And um, this is a, uh, a threat that uh, now spans three administrations. It, it uh, began most immediately in 2014 under President Obama. Um, outsourcing of veterans health care was greatly accelerated under the Trump administration, uh, which of course favored privatization of, and deregulation of, of many uh, things uh, that the federal government was doing. And uh, sadly, uh, while veterans and their caregivers um, looked for a different approach when President Biden was elected, uh, he has continued the policies of his two predecessors. And those policies involve uh, unnecessarily outsourcing uh, huge amounts of uh, care uh, provided to veterans, traditionally those eligible through the VA hospital system, to the private uh, hospital industry, to private sector providers. Uh, the care outside the VA is more costly, it's often wasteful, it's not as effective, it's not as veteran-centric. And that's why when the Biden administration came up with this uh, misbegotten plan to close scores of VA hospitals and clinics around the country, including uh, yours there locally, uh, in Western Mass, uh, there was a huge grassroots uh, protest against this. And effectively, the facility closing commission that the Biden administration hoped to use as an instrument for the restructuring of the system was shut down. So that was a real big victory for uh, veterans, uh, for VA patients, uh, and for the dedicated doctors, nurses, and therapists who try to help them out as VA caregivers. 
We are speaking with Steve Early, who is the co-author of the new book, Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends, and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs. Steve just mentioned his co-authors in this book, one of whom is Suzanne Gordon, who's a senior policy analyst at the Veterans Healthcare Policy Institute. The other is Jasper Craven, who is a freelance journalist who covers military and veterans affairs for The New York Times, The Atlantic, The New Republic, and other publications as well. So you just mentioned the Biden administration's proposal to close down uh, numerous Veterans Administration medical centers across the country, includes the, including the one here in Leeds, Massachusetts. And what I'd like to know is why? Uh, is this simply cost savings? Is somehow there's the accusation that the VA medical system is not uh, cost efficient and therefore they should close it down and fold it into uh, Medicare or Medicaid in some way? Well, it's... Uh it's really a product of what you might call the uh, healthcare industrial complex. Um, we know a lot about the military industrial complex and there's much criticism of its helpful influence on US foreign and military policy. But in healthcare, um, when you have a system like the VA, a public healthcare system, um, there's a lot of for-profit uh, businesses, uh, private hospital chains, private equity owned uh, medical practices, individual providers of all kinds of healthcare services that want a piece of the action, um, that want uh, the, the, the services that the VA provides to 9 million patients um, uh, outsourced uh, so that they can profit from the billions of dollars that we spend every year trying to provide the best possible care uh, for people who were promised that care when they signed up uh, to join the US military or in some cases were, were drafted to serve when there was still conscription. Um, in uh, the last few years, increasing amounts of uh, resources have been drained from the VA. Um, about 33% now of the more than 100 billion a year direct care budget uh, of the Veterans Health Administration, which runs this great network of hospitals and clinics like yours locally, is now going to outside providers uh, with very little monitoring of quality control, uh, very few cost controls, huge amount of money being skimmed off by uh, third-party administrators. And um, veterans have always been able to go outside of the VA on a case-by-case -case basis when there were services, medical treatments that they needed that could not be provided in-house. That was a rational, logical policy. But now you have powerful Washington, D.C. lobbyists who've uh, opened the floodgates of, of privatization, and it's undermining the, the whole system that is the first choice and the best choice of, of most veterans. And you saw that by the rallying around your local facility there by veterans and their organizations and their their caregivers uh, when it was threatened with a shutdown. Steve Early, I have a remedial question. Apologies to our listeners if everyone else out there knows the answer to this. But in the Veterans Administration medical system, who is covered and what are they covered for? And are they do they have to be service-related medical issues? It's a very, very good question because <clears throat> most people you know, assume that, that all veterans are automatically eligible for uh, free government-provided socialized medicine. Um, 
And that's not true. There's about 19 million living veterans. Uh, only about 9 million are actually VA patients. And uh, Congress has actually restricted access to the VA healthcare system. Um, at the present time, uh, people who've come back from combat zones uh, are able to access VA care for five years. Uh, beyond that, um, as you just mentioned, uh, it's either means tested, they have to be low income, or um, they have to prove uh, what's called a, a service related disability or condition. Um, they have to show that uh, there was an injury or illness that they developed in the course of their, their military service um, that uh, qualifies them for benefit payments and access to this uh, healthcare system. And so people have to file claims, they get help from veterans organizations, some have to hire lawyers. Uh, this often can take much longer than it should. Uh, they get a dis what's called a disability rating, could be 10%, could be 100%, and, uh, and then they're able to access uh, VA care. The, uh, uh, one of the ways the system could be expanded where there's uh, underutilization is by opening it up to other veterans, many of whom are poor and working class, don't have reliable job-based health insurance, uh, pay too much for it if they're buying it themselves uh, through the Affordable Care Act. Uh, some are on uh, Medicaid. There's a lot more veterans who could and should be covered by the VA, and that would be one of the ways of strengthening the system and, and keeping it going. So explain this to me. You just mentioned the t potential for percentages of uh, disability. Uh, does that affect how much coverage is offered through the VA medical system or not? No. No, I mean, once you've got your foot in the door with even a, uh, uh, you know, partial disability, um, you're able to access services for the rest of your life for all kinds of problems. So, uh, for example, many people, uh, again, as a result of the uh, shoddy practices of the Department of Defense as an employer, unsafe practices, uh, have hearing loss as a result of their military service, prolonged exposure to explosives in, in training and in actual combat zones. And uh, so one of the biggest reasons people come to the VA is for hearing aids. Um, and uh, this is a problem not just for older veterans, but for younger ones as well, come back from post 9-11 wars with serious hearing loss at very young age. So, uh, you know, that's not totally incapacitating in most people. It's not like having a 100% disability rating for traumatic brain injury or post-traumatic stress disorder or, or uh, because you've lost a limb um, or lost your eyesight, you're paralyzed. But there's a lot of people that come in with partial disability ratings. Uh, they get a small check, but most importantly, they get access to affordable care that's uh, integrated, that's coordinated, uh, this provided by dedicated healthcare professionals, a third of whom are veterans themselves. A unique culture of, of solidarity in healthcare in the VA you don't find in the rest of American healthcare. Which I really want to ask uh, Steve Early about. He's the co-author of Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends, and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs because there was a huge scandal not so many years ago about the quality of care or a lack of quality of care in VA medical centers. So we're going to come back and I'm going to ask him about that right after these messages. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. 
Want to support the kind of local talk you hear on The Bill Newman Show? Want to hear your business's message here on WHMP? Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. We'll help you craft a marketing message that'll reach listeners of your favorite WHMP show. And we'll be supporting the local news, valley talk, and progressive voices you hear right here on WHMP. Let us know about your message. Email us, yourmessage at whmp.com. And add your message to our mission. And hear your message right here on WHMP. Your message at whmp.com. 586-1000. Good phone number, right? It's the number Whalen Insurance got when we opened in 1961. It's still our number more than 60 years later. If you need an insurance quote or have a claim, just call 586-1000. We answer the phone, ready to help. That's our pledge to you. Until now. Now when you call, we'll answer. And if it's something clerical or routine, like an address change, we're going to transfer you to the Arbella Insurance Call Center in Quincy. You'll be connected with a real person there, too. You won't be entering your policy number on the dial pad. The Arbella Call Center. I told myself Whalen Insurance would never do this, but insurance agent friends all over New England tell me it actually works really well. So we're going to try it. And if it doesn't work well, I'm sure you'll let us know by calling 586-1000. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, Local Insurance, in partnership with Arbella Insurance. Do you act a certain way around your partner because you're afraid of what they'll think or say? Are you afraid of what they'll do? If you're in a relationship, it's your right to be healthy and safe. If you're experiencing abuse, emotional, verbal, or physical, you have options, and Safe Passage is here to help. It's all free and completely confidential. We are here for you. Call our hotline at 413 586 5066 or visit safepass.org. Hi, I'm Kate Kelly, public health nurse with the City of Northampton. The Northampton Health Department is holding vaccination clinics in Northampton and other locations in the region. Outdoor walk-in availability has reopened at the Northampton High School. Dates, locations, and appointments for all clinic sites can be found at the City of Northampton website. Go to www.northamptonma.gov and click on Vaccine Clinics. The clinics continue to offer Pfizer, pediatric Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and in special situations, Johnson & Johnson. Clinics will also offer boosters to anyone ages 5 and up. The COVID vaccine is free for anyone from any community. Please bring your vaccine card and insurance card. If you do not have health insurance, you can still have a vaccine. Public health nurses are available at every clinic for your questions or concerns. Booster shots are one more layer of protection against COVID-19, and they prevent a huge number of people from needing to go to the hospital. We want to protect our most vulnerable or simply unlucky neighbors from getting the virus. We can't afford to let our guard down. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Steve Early, co-author of Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends, and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs. I'd like to know, what is the quality of care across the country in Veterans Administration Medical Centers? Are we talking about terrific, good, average, below average, terrible? What's the real story? The real story is we document in the book, uh, citing numerous uh, studies, RAND Corporation studies, um, uh, medical journal studies. Uh, You know, the VA outperforms private sector hospital chains in just about every category. Um, One of the reasons for this is that they have an empowered uh, patient. Uh, 
veterans are well organized. They have advocacy organizations. You've heard of them, Veterans of Foreign Wars, Disabled American Veterans, American Legion. Um, once they get into the VA healthcare system, if something goes wrong, uh, they have organizations that pick up the phone. Members of Congress, Jim McGovern, to his credit, very, very responsive when uh, veterans or their constituents have a problem or complaint with the VA. It's a transparent public system. Uh, the, it has an inspector general that does regular reports about any kind of problems. If there's medical malpractice, if there's any kind of breakdown in the quality of care, there is a public report, uh, an investigation leading to a public report that uh, then becomes available. That's not the case in private hospital systems. They cover up and bury their mistakes. They settle malpractice suits with non-disclosure clauses. It's very hard to find out until much after the fact what's going wrong in, in the rest of the healthcare system. So, you know, transparency, the fact that patients are empowered, uh, organized, and the fact that you had, as I mentioned before, uh, a workforce that's mission-driven. It's not, the doctors at the VA are not in it for the money. Uh, as I said, a third of the medical staff served in the military itself. Uh, they're there because they want to serve other veterans. And, um, you know, it's a terrific place to work. And, and I would encourage uh, nursing students, medical students, therapists, anybody, social workers, to check out the VA um, because uh, it's heavily unionized. Uh, workers have a voice on the job. And through their unions, they have ability to uh, fight for patient care quality standards and, and adequate staffing and all the things you need to do your job well in healthcare. There was a outcry, I guess going back, I'm not sure, eight years maybe, give or take, about quality yeah. of care at the VA. Yeah. What, 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 were, were those reports overblown? Were they wrong? Were they right? Have the conditions that were complained about been remedied? What can you tell us about that? Well, it was pretty much a media and right-wing Republican concocted quote unquote scandal involving one VA medical center in, in Phoenix, Arizona. And uh, the issue there was uh, wait times. Um, you know, that a lot of veterans live year round in the Sun Belt. Others uh, live in the North, sometimes winter in places like Arizona. Um, it, it does lead to an influx of, uh, of patients in some Sun Belt VA facilities, uh, unless they're staffed up to deal with that seasonal surge, uh, there's going to be some delays in getting an appointment. Uh, when you have a lot of patients coming in from out state, it's part of the same national healthcare system, which is a strength of the VA. You can go anywhere. Uh, your medical records can be accessed. You show them your card, and it's like you're a patient there locally. But in this particular situation, there were some administrators uh, who, uh, you know, had some incentives for uh, covering up information about how long it was taking certain patients to, to get an appointment. And um, this got out. They were disciplined as they should have been, barred, suspended. It was a congressional investigation. But uh, right-wing Republicans who had long wanted to privatize the VA uh, used this to get their foot in the door, passed some legislation called the Choice Act. And that set aside some money to allow veterans supposedly to bypass these uh, wait waiting lines, which were not very long to begin with in this one facility, and start to go outside the system. And that thing's mushroomed since then over the last eight years to the point where the costs are unsustainable. Uh, the budget for direct care 
uh, for veterans who want to remain uh, within the VA system has been cannibalized to pay for care outside. Um, that, as I mentioned earlier, is not properly monitored and uh, is not really based on medical necessity in many cases. We've been speaking with Steve Early. He's the co-author of Our Veterans, Winners, Losers, Friends, and Enemies on the New Terrain of Veterans Affairs. His co-authors are Suzanne Gordon and Jasper Craven. Steve did make the point to us while we're talking off-air that I think, which we're sorry we didn't have time to discuss, but the soldiers' home scandal here in Massachusetts, that is not a veterans' affair uh, issue. It is a state issue, not a federal issue, and the Veterans Administration does not own that. So I appreciate your pointing that out to me and for I having the ability to share it with our listeners. Thank you so much, Steve Early. Really appreciate your book and really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on the show. It's been great. Afternoon Buzz with legendary civil rights attorney from Ashfield, Buzz Eisenberg. Buzz will bring you his take on the day's news, plus arts, culture, and politics from the Valley, weekday afternoons at 4. The only live and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. The Afternoon Buzz, 101.5 WHMP. Have you heard of the Living Building Challenge? The Hitchcock Center for the Environment in Amherst invites you to explore a revolutionary new kind of building, generating its own electricity and using only water collected on site from rain. The Hitchcock Center is our region's first public environmental education center, demonstrating the highest standard of sustainable design. Come visit us. The Hitchcock Center, 845 West Street. In the Amherst. only live for and local talk in the Valley and for the Valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock.